Now, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am delighted to introduce today's very special forum. Politics is how a society decides to live together. And for political junkies, right now, Ontario is a pretty exciting place. On October 15th, the Honourable Dalton McGuinty stepped down after eight years as the Premier of our province. In the six weeks since, seven candidates have stepped forward to vie for the leadership of the Liberal Party and ergo the Premiership. Today, you will have an opportunity to meet those seven. Six of those candidates represent or represented ridings in the GTA. One is from Windsor. Five are men, two are women. They are seasoned politicians and former cabinet ministers, well-established public servants, everyone. I'm going to introduce them here briefly, after which Steve Pakin will engage them in a lively discussion on why they are interested in this particular job vacancy and what they hope to do with it. First, Eric Hoskins, a humanitarian and family doctor. Dr. Hoskins was first elected as the MPP for the Toronto Riding of St. Paul's in 2009. He served most recently as Ontario's Minister of Children and Youth Services and was also the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. Welcome, Eric. I'll have to do another of my requests to please hold your applause because I'm sure you'd rather hear from them than me. <laughs> Gerard Kennedy. Uh, Mr. Kennedy was Ontario's Minister of Education from 2003 to 2006 before he ran for the federal Liberal leadership. He was the head of Toronto's Daily Bread Food Bank until he entered politics in 1996. Glenn Murray. Mr. Murray was first elected as the MPP for Toronto Centre in 2010. He served as Minister of Research and Innovation and Minister of Training, Colleges and Universities. He is also the former Mayor of Winnipeg. Sandra Pupatello. Ms. Pupatello's career in the Ontario Legislature began in 1995. First appointed as the Minister of Social and Community Services, she has also held the portfolios of Minister of Education and Minister of Economic Development and Trade. Most recently, she joined PwC in Toronto as a Director of Business Development and Global Markets. Charles Souza. In 2007, Mr. Souza successfully ran to be the MPP for Mississauga South. His most recent cabinet roles have been Minister of Citizenship and Immigration and Minister responsible for the 2015 Pan and Parapan Am Games. Harinder Takar. Mr. Takar was elected as the MPP for Mississauga Arendale in October 2003. He served as Minister of Transportation, Minister of Small Business and Entrepreneurship, Minister of Small Business and Consumer Services, and most recently as Minister of Government Services. If my math were better, I would love to add up the number of years of cabinet experience we have at our head table. <laughs> um, Kathleen Wynne. Ms. Wynne was first elected in 2003 as the MPP for Don Valley West. Last October, she was appointed Minister of Municipal Affairs of ha and Housing and Minister of Aboriginal Affairs. Previously, she, she served as Minister of Transportation and Minister of Education. And today's event will be moderated by TVO's own, and I suppose by extension Ontario's own, Steve Pakin, the anchor of TVO's flagship current affairs program, The Agenda. Now before I bring Steve and the candidates to the stage, a reminder to everyone in our live audience that you can ask a question via your Q&A card, so please raise your hand and a volunteer will collect it. And without further ado, Mr. Pakin, esteemed candidates, the stage is yours. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Is this mic on? Can you hear me okay? Yes? Okay. Just a couple of housekeeping items while everybody gets their seat going here. These are, of course, this debate is all questions from you. We've been taking questions from the audience and social media, so these will be less... This is not really my show. This is your show today. Tonight, right after this is over, these seven are all going to come up to TVO, and then they're going to do a taping for the agenda tonight. It'll be different because your questions and my questions won't be the same. So... Watch us tonight at 8 or 11 o'clock for that debate. Watch us now for this one. Uh, obviously, time being what it is, we have seven candidates and not that much time. I'm going to 
beg the indulgence of all of the leadership hopefuls um, to keep their answers as succinct as possible. And before we start, uh, Dr. Hoskins, we have some full disclosure business to do here. Well, Steve and I talked about this, and in certainly uh, uh, there's a reason why there's some distance between the two of them. And in the spirit of full disclosure, I uh, need to announce that Mr. Pakin is endorsing me in my campaign. Uh, so, Zach, I think you're sitting over there. <laughs> just, uh, it, it's thank not you. this Pakin. My kid is working on his campaign. So we just, get, <laughs> we just get that out for full disclosure right off the top. My son, Zach. <laughs> no, I'm not supporting any of you, actually. Yes, I, I, <laughs> I wish. I, let me rephrase. Let, let, let me rephrase. I, I wish you all well, but I'm not supporting any of you. Okay. <laughs> Here we go, right off the top. Uh, can I see a show of hands in this room? How many of you have children in the public school system, please? Hands up. You may be interested in this one then. Okay. Here's the first. And let's go in. Um, let's go. Obviously, all seven of you are going to want to address this, but I'll give it to the, the former education ministers first. So Kathleen Wynne, Sandra Pupatello, Gerard Kennedy first. If you were premier, what would you do to resolve the issue with our teachers? You're on. So what I have said is that uh, the process as it has played out, I think we can all agree, has not been what it should have been. Uh, between now and January 25th, there will be actions taken on both sides. My hope is still that uh, government and uh, federations can get back to the table. As of January 28th, what I will do if I am the Premier is I will be bringing teachers, support workers, boards of education together. We need to find some common ground and develop a new process that respects local bargaining, but also recognizes the need for a more formalized provincial process. We need a new process. Sandra Pupatello. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, and I do think that perhaps by the end of January, if we're, if we're lucky, things may be better than the acrimonious relationship right now. I do want to stand on my record as Minister of Education. I had a very good working relationship with the presidents of the federations right across the board and right across Ontario. I want to have that again. What we can't see is that we can't see children being used as pawns, which is happening now. So we want to change that. I have to say that the provincial bargaining structure that we have had in the past, it worked really well when we had lots of money to give. That's changed. And I think we've got to figure out what we're going to do going forward. And I'm prepared to have those, those tough discussions, but I'm prepared to have an open, upfront, honest conversation with people. The way I did before is what they can expect from me again. Gerard Kennedy. Well, I think it's important that a government acknowledges when it makes mistakes. And I think the approach we're taking with teachers right now is not one that's going to fit our long-term benefit. So Bill 115 is not an approach that I endorse because there has to be real negotiation. We, know, we need not just to get the dollars that we have to recover in the system. We need the goodwill for children to stay in the system. We need the partnership that we formed in 2003 when we arranged our first four-year deal to be intact. We need passionate teachers teaching in front of the classroom, education workers and others, and we need to let all public sector workers know that we want to engage them when it comes to the transformation that, doc, that Mr. Drummond has challenged us to. So there's a different approach coming, and what I would say to all parties right now, let's try and sustain the goodwill in terms of, of, of what's there for kids, and we'll see what happens uh, once the leadership is concluded. But I, I worry for the interim that everybody exercise that caution. Glenn Murray. Um, <clears throat> I don't um, worry about the applause, everybody. We'll get more time for questions here. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, I've negotiated many collective agreements as a mayor and in the private sector, all successfully, all within fiscal plan, none of them with a strike. So I bring an immense amount of experience uh, maybe to that. Second of all, uh, we just negotiated college faculty all across what I was minister of training colleges and universities successfully, zeros. Uh, we did that, and we did that with OSSTF. Uh, so I already have a track record with these same unions and resolving within our fiscal plan agreement. The final point I make is this. I have been talking to them. Uh, when Sam Hammond shows up and protests, I go out and I spend time with him and I listen to him. I go out and sit down with OSTF when they protest. I have spent a few hours, I think, in the last months uh, talking to that. I, I've maintained a positive relationship, so I don't have to reinvent it when, if and when you elect me leader of your party. I will keep that relationship going, and I think it's already there. Charles Susan. We need to resolve it, um, and it's unfortunate. I think we all acknowledge that we could have done better in terms of how we established uh, the situation to this point. Everyone, teachers included, understand that we have a fiscal situation, and it's tough. And as a former Minister of Labour, 
I recognize that the best deals are the ones done at the collective agreement at the bargaining table. We need to reestablish goodwill. We need to reestablish trust. We need people to sit down at the table and get it done. And I believe we do have a deal, but we need to work together to make it so. I have been meeting with local uh, unions in my riding. We've been speaking about this quite a bit, as has everyone else. We need to do better. Harinder Tucker. I want to make two points. The first point is, actually, I worked uh, at the Peel District School Board, which is the second largest school board in Ontario, at times when the Harris government actually did major cuts. I did, and I was the chief financial officer and the associate director, so I had hands-on experience dealing with the unions at that point of time. We negotiated the deal, but at the same time, we also made sure that the education for the kids didn't suffer. The second example I want to give you is we recently signed the agreement with the MAPSIO. We sat on the table with them for 1,000 hours. We negotiated the deal, which is equally good as the teacher's deal is. So my point is that if we can work with the unions, sit on the table, and negotiate the deals, that's much better. But we also need to point out is we are here because we have a $14 billion deficit in this province, and we need to address that. And 50% of that deficit 50% of our total expenditure is in costs. So if we don't address the issue of salaries and wages, we will not be able to address the issue of the deficit, which is very, very important for us to address in order to attract investment and not to leave burden with our kids as well. Eric Hoskins. Well, Ontario has the, the best education system in the English-speaking world, and we built that education system because of a strong partnership with our teachers, our education workers, our administrators, and the government, and we need to rebuild that partnership so we can make further progress. I'm deeply concerned about the deterioration in the relationship in that partnership between the government and the teachers. I have a seven-year-old son who's in the public system, and what we need to do is we need to press reset. We need to show some on all sides some genuine collaborative leadership. We have time. We have several weeks left where we can reach an agreement. I'll tell you one thing that I won't do. I won't, as we did in Kitchener-Waterloo during the by-election last fall, I will not disrespect our teachers, and I not, will not try to drive a wedge between our teachers, their students, and their families. I don't need all of you to respond to this unless you differ from what the current education minister has done today, which is to say she will permit one day rolling strikes as I believe she called a good balance between the union's rights and the requirements of teachers and students and parents. Does anybody object to that today? Everybody agrees with that. Laurel Broad made a good decision. Well, sorry, I guess I'm not... Like what we have now in a relationship is is the respect has come out in some areas. We have local bargaining taking place. And I think that what I would prefer to see is that we somehow take the tension out of this, that we move some of the goalposts here. Um, and I think that there's, so I, I, I like the idea that there can be a limiting, a respecting of the fact that people are going to respect, are going to uh, have a chance to express themselves. But I, I hope that leads to some flexibility around some of these hard dates. Children do not get, need to get caught in artificial deadlines, and I'm hoping that maybe the step that uh, the minister is taking today could lead us to further flexibility, because that's what everybody needs. There's been a working relationship that can be brought on track if it happens. Eric Hoskins? Well, it's important to remember that we have the flexibility if the leadership uh, uh, makes the effort to reach agreement. We do have that time left. And I just ask people to remember with the agreement between the doctors and the province, back in June and July, we were at a similar point. Negotiations had broken down. Uh, there was a media war almost going on between the two parts, but we were able to, over the course of the summer, restart those negotiations. And in fact, this past weekend, the membership of the OMA, the 25,000 doctors in this province, have voted on a tentative agreement, which I'm confident will pass. So that opportunity exists uh, with their teachers as well, and it's important, as has been mentioned, that this not be to the detriment of our students or their families. You're a doctor. How'd you vote on that? I uh, did not vote. You didn't but vote? But my wife, uh, Samantha Nutt, uh, did vote. You can ask her how she voted. Okay. I think she probably <laughs> voted in favor. Kathleen Wynne and then uh, yeah, I, think any, I think anything that opens the opportunity for a more respectful engagement to happen is a good thing. So my hope is that uh, as a result of what's happening today and the next few days that there may be an opportunity to come back to the table. When you get to the point where there's strike action, you know that the conversation is broken down and so there needs to be some opening of uh, opportunity to come back to the table. I'm hoping that that's what will happen. Glenn Murray, then Harinder Tukar. Yeah, just real quickly. The... Um, there are, a number of, so there are a number of collectively bargained settlements from McMaster to our, all of our colleges that fit within the fiscal plan and have achieved zeros. There's probably seven different models. 
I think it would be a very good idea if the minister started to call, if the union presidents are saying the same things to us that they're saying to her, to call them in and say, here's a range that fit our fiscal plan. Are these reasonably acceptable to you? Is there some combination of those? And if there is a positive response to that, the need for legislation hanging over this process is probably unnecessary. But I think that should happen next. Yeah, we need to respect the rights of teachers, but at the same time, we also need to make sure that the rights of the students are also protected, that they get the best education they deserve, and they are not held hostages on these issues either. And I think the calls that I'm getting in my constituency office is the inconvenience that is will cause to the parents if the, if the teachers go on strike. Okay, next question. If you become liberal leader, will you bring the legislature back to continue business in the province as soon as you are elected, or will government remain closed for longer? Sandra Pupatelli, you want to start on that? Thanks for that. I appreciate that. And I will bring back the House as soon as I'm able, and I hope to run in a by-election fairly quickly after winning the leadership. There are a couple of people, fortunately, who have offered me an opportunity to run in their ridings, and I expect to take advantage of that. And I do want to say that this is exactly the plan that was followed by the Conservatives, some of whom are, are here today, I'm glad to see, that when they were electing a new leader, when they were the government, they came back, prorogued the House so that they could go off and win in a by-election. So we're following that same plan, and I hope that that's going to happen very quickly. And I'll also note that by the time we get to the end of the spring session, we will have had the same number of sessional days. So I expect that that would be the course I would follow. Thanks, Steve. Charles Susan. Immediately. I mean, Ontarians ex expect us to be back, to, uh, back in the legislature as soon as possible. We have some shared initiatives that I think are important. Certainly uh, around the platform that I'm being suggested is about increasing our, 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 our job growth, enabling us to continue with some investments, and we need to get to the table quickly to do those. And uh, I am looking forward to working collaboratively as best I can with those shared initiatives with the opposition. And we need to get uh, as much of the initiatives underway as soon as possible for the benefit of all Ontarians. Glenn Murray. I said it right away. Call it right back after Family Day. So Feb, whatever that is? Yeah, 19th, I think it 19th? is. 19th? Yeah, the, the first opportunity when we, when we were planning to go back. And I said that without hesitation right away. We cannot be away any longer. Eric Hoskins? Well, I understand that the public feels that it's important for government to be accountable to the legislature. Uh, and a lot of important things happen in that place. And I also agree with the public when they believe that prorogation should be a tool of last resort. So I intend to bring the government back as soon as possible uh, after the leadership convention. And also I intend to govern uh, in a minority situation. So I would work with both parties to ensure that we're able to do the hard work that Ontarians in a minority situation expect us to do. Kathleen Wynne. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm running to govern and I want to get back to the House as soon as we can. I think that the, uh, the antidote to prorogation as I've been uh, Telling, saying it to people around the province, is that we get back as soon as possible. And, and Glenn, uh, Glenn uh, referenced February 19th. Uh, that's the date that's on the legislative calendar, and I would like to get back as soon as we can. I know Harvey Cooper, for example, is in the, is in the room, and there was legislation that we were bringing forward on a number of fronts, including co-op, that we want to get back. We want to get that legislation passed. There's a lot of work to be done, and people want, to, want us to be there doing the work of the people. Harinder Takar. Uh, my position is that we will bring the legis legislature back as per the legislative calendar, which is February the 19th. I think the Ontario is facing two major challenges. One is the elimination of the debt. The other is creation of the jobs. And we need to, need to go back and focus on those items in the legislature. Gerard Kennedy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I organized three weeks of hearings against Mr. Harper when it seemed in a minority government he was using the power of prorogement in a manner that was arbitrary. I think there's real business being done. The province has got a doctor deal, in it, and uh, I'm sorry that Eric's abstained, but I'm sure it'll go through anyway. Um, but it's, uh, it's, a good, it's a good piece of work, and the government's been working, but prorogement has to be administrative, and therefore I would bring it back as soon as possible. Uh, as Mr. Eves showed, um, I can be part of the government and run a by-election concurrently with bringing the House back. And we have to show the faith in the people of Ontario. And ultimately, even though there's been hyper-partisanship and a, on a, a kind of a poisonous atmosphere that we need to deal with, we ultimately have to show faith in, Parliament, in, in the legislature and the people, and the people who've been sent there uh, by the public. So. You and Sandra Pubatello are the only ones up here who don't have a seat. 
she said she has a, a path to get back in. Do you as well? Yeah, I do have people that have, I mean, it's, I have to say, people offered their seats and people in writings that are quite winnable in order to facilitate this. So there's a, people shouldn't mistake, there's a fairly strong team effort behind this renewal and um, and I'm glad to say that that, that, that uh, likelihood exists, or not likely, that, that certainty exists. I didn't want to say certainty because it sounds presumptuous on my part, but I'm just saying, should I win, there is a seat I can run in. Okay. Two, in fact. Next one, let's talk poverty. <laughs> Uh, what will you do to continue driving Ontario's poverty reduction strategy? Harinder Takar, you want to start with that one? My view is that we need to look after all Ontarians in this province and the people who are most vulnerable. We need to pay really attention to them. Uh, first of all, we also need to make sure is actually the issue of the jobs is addressed in this province. We can only eliminate poverty when the issue of the job is addressed. So that's why in my 100-day action plan, I am actually focusing on creating Ontario Small Business Development Agency and also giving incentives to people to create jobs. If people can have jobs and good-paying jobs, the issue of the poverty can be addressed. Uh, the, otherwise, the, that issue will always be around. We need to make the economy grow. We need to make the jobs grow and look after the people who actually need our help so we can focus on the programs like the education and the health care and the social benefits programs. Gerard Kennedy. Well, I'd like to start us, uh, you know, we made a lot of progress on a lot of fronts as a government, but I'd like to start us making more specific progress about the most vulnerable people in this province. What got me into politics in the first place, from running a food bank to running for leadership, as I'm sure most people take a path like that. Um, but it was about people being left out. And I'd like to see our social programs turned into potential programs, where we focus our efforts, as just been recommended, in fact, by Ms. Lankin and others, to allow people to make their maximum potential contribution to society. It can be the jobs that Harinder is talking about. It can also be volunteer positions. But the key thing that's missing and is holding us back is we don't incent employers enough to use the 80% of disabled people who have education. Our province, our jurisdiction is not strong enough in that regard. And this is the time to do it because ultimately it means we're going to have these jobs without people and people without jobs. We're allowing productivity to come from people who are being passed over and it's going to cost us less money. For every 2% that we reduce the number of people on social assistance, it's going to save us $140 million a year. So it's, it's, it's time for us to have that focus. And to me, it's a very liberal focus to, to allow people to be seen for, their, for what they have to contribute instead of being seen as people stuck in poverty. Charles Susan. Well, it's about breaking the cycle of poverty. And it's about trying to help our children, especially those, and if any of you have visited some of these uh, uh, halfway houses, it's pretty sad. There's a lot of young kids who are in transition, and they're happy, but their future is bleak. And part of that is education. I commend our party for dealing with all-day learning, enabling our young people to get a better start in life. But we also need to ensure that when they grow up, they've got somewhere to go. And it's all about job creation. Every decision we make as a government has to be around the creation of those jobs by way of secondary manufacturing, by way of infrastructure investments for the long-term prosperity of this province. Those are the kind of things that's going to break the cycle of poverty, and education is a big piece of it. And I should say this. A lot of people who are unemployed, our youth at 18%, bad enough. 8% is the average unemployment now, but newcomers to this country and to Ontario have a 27% unemployment rate now. A lot of them are the ones that are in poverty. A lot of them are the ones that we have to ensure that we take the right steps to appropriately integrate them into our society as well. Sandra Puputello. Thanks for that, Steve, because I think this is where liberals, frankly, differentiate ourselves against the NDP and the Conservatives. A lot of people talk about poverty and these big slogans all the time. I want to talk about things we've actually done. While I was Minister of Community and Social Services, making a huge difference for people with developmental disabilities in their own communities, shutting down institutions they used to live in and bringing them home. I did do that with a whole group of great volunteers out there in every region of the province. I want to talk a little bit about the regulation changes I made so people could go easier from welfare into work, and they did. And likewise, people with disabilities, just a little bit of extra help that could move them from the system and go back to work sometime if they could. 
We actually did that, and I want to do more of it. There's a reason that John Malloy, the current Community and Social Services Minister, is endorsing my campaign. He knows where I'm going on these social issues. He knows that that's what it is about. It's about social housing, even when we don't have the federal government supporting us like we did in that first term in 2003. We can still build social housing. We may have to do it differently, but we can do this. And I'm prepared to put that forward in this campaign to talk to liberals about how we will go up against the NDP and go against the conservatives. They'll talk in slogans, and the liberal government will actually do it. Glenn Murray. Three, three quick points. One is uh, Eric Hoskins, I, and Laurel Broughton wrote an amazing policy online, the first wiki policy project in North America, with 8,000 Ontarians that proposed a social innovation strategy with a series of initiatives and programs within the fiscal plan. And I would like to work with Eric and Laurel and implement that because it would start to dramatically bring down our welfare rates and we tap the smartest people in Ontario to do it. We have the plan. Let's get on and do it. Number two is when I was mayor of Winnipeg, we built more affordable housing than any other jurisdiction in Canada and according to my friend Steve Mahoney in history. We didn't do it through the, the public sector approach. We did it through a partnership approach. I wrote a paper on it. The paper's there, the policy's ready to go, could build 50,000 housing, affordable housing units in 50 years using private sector not-for-profit partners. I want to do that. And finally, my tax plan gives everything from a $300 to $1,000 tax break for middle and low-income families. They need more money in their pockets. They haven't been benefited from the recovery, so I would implement that. Those are three initiatives that I think would dramatically change and reduce poverty in Ontario. Kathleen Wynne. Let me tell you just a quick story about how we got a poverty reduction strategy in Ontario um, because we're the first Ontario government to have a poverty reduction strategy to set targets and to, to meet those targets. Um, we, uh, we, had a, we had a women's caucus. I was chair of the women's caucus and there were a number of people. There were some honorary women who came and some of the men in our caucus came to that women's caucus. We went to our large caucus and we said, we think poverty reduction is something that we should focus on as a government. And the answer we got back from some of the party elders was, you know what, not a lot of votes in poverty reduction. And we pushed and we brought a proposal. We said, actually, the people who vote for me care about those people. The people in, living in poverty may not be voting for us because they're too busy trying to put food on the table for their kids, but the people who care about them actually do vote for me. They live in Leaside and they live in North Toronto and they live in the... Um, they live in the uh, the, on post roads. So we got a poverty reduction strategy and that was pushed by the Women's Caucus and I think that's a very important reality and we got there and all of our government stood behind us and we have that poverty reduction strategy. So I'm going to continue to implement that. The, the report that uh, Munir Sheikh and Francis Lankin have brought out I think is a starting point for the next phase in our rationalization of the social assistance program and uh, making some changes to help people get into, into work. But the other thing that I think is really important is that my economic policy is going to be my poverty reduction strategy. You can't divide the two. We can't talk in, sweet, in sequence about poverty and then the economy. Or we'll just worry about the economy now and then later we'll worry about poverty, redu poverty reduction. I don't think that's how it works. I think as liberals we do those things simultaneously, simultaneously and that's how we get to a more just society. Thank you, Ms. Wayne. Kathleen. Uh, Eric Hoskins, last word on this. Thank you. Well, um, as, uh, there, as a family doctor, there's, there are a few things more frustrating than when you, uh, for example, give a prescription to a child and his parent uh, for a chest infection and send them home knowing that that child is living in poverty. And so they may not have access to uh, adequate housing. Uh, they suffer in school. They don't get enough food or nutrition. And so those are the social determinants of health. And there are 400,000 kids in Ontario living in poverty today, and 150,000 of those are using our food banks 150,000 people don't have access to affordable housing right now, or they're on the affordable housing wait list. So there's a tremendous amount of work to do, and I have to say that I'm proud that even before politics, I spent 25 years working with and on behalf of vulnerable children and youth. I was the chair of the government's poverty reduction strategy, this province's poverty reduction strategy for the last year, and we've made great strides. We've, we've lifted 20,000 kids out of poverty in that first year of the program. 
We're going to see in the report next week that many more kids have also been lifted out of poverty, but there's much, much work, work to be done. And, and I believe that we, should, we need to immediately implement the social assistance review that Francis Lankin and Manoush Sheikh have recommended, partly because it talks about streamlining the programs, uh, consolidating programs and benefits so it works better for the recipients, but it also talks importantly about that productive employment for individuals living with disability, but also those in Ontario works. So okay. I would begin implementing that program, that uh, their, their, their program immediately. Next question here is on uh, privatizing the LCBO, and I got a feeling we can deal with this one quickly. Um, <laughs> You've all been watching Tim Hudak, the Conservative Party leader, who over the last few days has been making a series of announcements about privatizing OLG, the casinos, the lottery, uh, the LCBO today. Does anybody up here think that we can loosen up on the sale of, say, beer and wine in the corner stores, or maybe you want to look at somehow changing the way the LCBO does business? Glenn Murray, go ahead. Yeah, I, I grew up in Quebec. J'aime la vin rouge. I, uh, I loved when I was a student going down and getting a glass of a bottle of wine and uh, a blanket. Well, I was 18. You were 18, okay. Yes. <laughs> and uh, at the corner store. And uh, getting beer at the wine at the corner store makes huge sense to me. It, it renewed the small businesses of Main Streets, which we've been losing. It helped mom and pop shops make ends meet. Uh, and it adds to the culture and excitement of our streets, and it helps support small business. And I'd love to have that Quebec model here in Ontario. But privatizing the LCBO as well? No, no, not privatizing, just no, the no, Quebec no, I, model. I'm just asking They still you. have a very healthy public sector uh, SAC in Quebec, and I, and I think it's a good model. I like what Quebec's done. I think we should steal from our neighbors. Kathleen Wynne. So I'm a bit of the, if it ain't broke, let's not try to fix it school of thought. And I think the distribution network that we've got of LCBOs is, uh, is pretty good. We've, uh, there has been a loosening up of uh, the laws over the last few years in terms of outlets. So I don't think we need to fix it. And, and the thing I worry about is um, putting the responsibility, and, I, and Glenn, I really, I hear you and I, uh, I appreciate that, uh, ex that experience, but I heard a, a young man on the radio, or not, maybe not so young, talking about when he was 10 going to a dépanneur and being able to get a case of beer and there was, no, there was no restriction on that. So I just worry about putting that responsibility on people who may not be ready to take it on. I like the LCBO the way it is. Charles Susan. You know, it just reminds me of the same old kind of uh, response that they've come back with in the past. Just think of the 407. They're selling off a public asset of great valuation for a song because in the end, it's going... It's, the worth of LCBO is its monopoly. So at the moment you're going to sell it, you're going to still keep it as a monopoly or they won't buy it. And then you're going to be subject to the conditions of, the, of that buyer in the long term at your peril. This is inappropriate. This LCBO is a huge, tremendous contributor to revenue for this province. And Hudak's playing to appeal out there. You might as well say VQA and microbrew in those corner stores to promote Local brew. I mean, that's another option. But that's going to deteriorate the valuation of the LCBO, just as selling the 407 was a mistake. We have looked at all of our public assets in terms of its valuation to see what kind of returns we can get. This is a very dangerous thing that he's proposing without appropriate thought. Harinder Tukar. Actually, Charles and I are very much on the same page on this one. I am not in favor of privatizing LCBO if they're going to do it the same way they did Highway 407. I think we gave away 407, and it is really causing us a lot of headache in terms of lost productivity in the GT area by about maybe $6 billion. Uh, I think we need to have some discussion as to what is maybe the form it could take if we want to do the retail side of it. But the distribution should stay intact because it brings about $1.6 billion revenue to Ontario. Eric Hoskins. Well, uh, I would not privatize the LCBO, but I want to say this. is uh, A week ago, I was in my hometown, the town of Simcoe in southwestern uh, Ontario, rural Ontario, and I met with a high school classmate of mine who has uh, founded, uh, with another classmate, a winery called Burning Kiln. It just won a Premier's Award, actually, in the, uh, re recently for the quality and the innovation. It's actually taking tobacco kilns and transferring them, changing them so that they can uh, dry the wines. So I said in my rural platform last Friday that I would want to make a priority to find new retail and marketing opportunities for Ontario wines 
in Ontario craft beers because it is a growing industry that is worth supporting. They're world-class wines, and they are certainly uh, finding a disadvantage and great difficulty in being able to penetrate the market, I think, because of some of the ways that we go about our government business. I would not privatize, but I would certainly look to augment those practices. Sandra Pupatello. I think what's really apparent right now is that if you live in Toronto, you probably don't realize that there are 217 locations in rural Ontario that have mini liquor stores inside the grocery store. So if you're out in rural Ontario, cottage country or otherwise, it's there already. I think we need to tell Tim Hudak that. He's too Toronto to be running for all of Ontario. And I think that's what's critical. And I need my colleagues here as well to know that there's a big old province out there. And if you're in a little town in Ontario where I've spent a lot of time lately, they don't have all this infrastructure for a fancy flagship LCBO like you've got up the Young Street here in Toronto. You've got to go to the local grocery, to Foodland. They've got all the beer and wine in there. That's where I go to buy my beer and wine, even if I was 10. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was a tall girl. I'm teasing. But seriously, folks, I think what Tim Huda gives us a chance to do is say, He's to Toronto for the rest of Ontario, number one. Number two, we've got to be about changing things up. And that means don't be afraid to look at things. But when these really smart people got on a panel and reviewed what we should do for LCBO, not all that long ago, they said, don't kill the cash cow. And right now, we need a lot of money because the number one issue for us is our fiscal situation. That's why what Tim is saying is so outrageous right now. We've got to figure out where the money comes from. Every time he comes out with these clever little pieces of paper, I've got to ask him, where is the money coming from? And I hope the business people in this room, Satinder's here representing CFIB, he knows he's going to call up Hudak and say, where are you going to get the money when you get rid of the LCBO? There's $2 billion there. That's what I'm going to ask him during an election. I'm going to ask him to be accountable for the policies that he's tabling, like little candy for the public, because he doesn't think we're smart enough to know any better. Okay, Thanks, let's get, Stephen. Let's get Gerard Kennedy in. Gerard Kennedy. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the LCBO is, uh, does a couple of important things that have to stay. One is all of the revenue. Uh, we need it for a lot of, uh, of good purposes, but also the access in terms of, of, of alcohol. Having said that, other provinces have been able to maintain the, the, the revenue. They've been able to mix up the, uh, the selection. They've been able to bring more to, to rural Ontario. It's too bad Mr. Hudak can't get out more to, the, to see the places that are underserved. Um, it, it is, I think, something we have to consider. There isn't anything in an enterprising government that we shouldn't be prepared to look at, but the principles should be really clear. We know why LCBO was there, and we know what we would come out with. We come out with at least the same money. Now, interestingly, that's the claim that was made in Alberta, but as Sandra suggested, there was a study of this lately. There, or sorry, maybe it was Kathleen. And, um, and, and there was a, a marginal benefit for Ontarians. But in the scenario that we're in right now, and I say this to the employees of of LCBO. Those are good-paying jobs. I'm not against good-paying jobs. But what I want to say to everybody working in the public sector, we need public sector productivity. We need to know how we're going to justify this because there's an uncertainty out there. What we don't want Mr. Hudak to do is divide us into people who think they have good-paying jobs and the people who don't deserve them. There's a lot of challenges that we have ahead, and the only way we're going to meet those challenges is by pulling people together, putting some of these questions out in the open, with their implications, having a public debate. And I don't even mind having Mr. Hudak at that table. It's a minority government. Let him bring his proposition into committee. Let's have a look at whether his numbers add up and so on, and let's see what's in the interest of the province. But, you know, nothing is ruled in or out simply on its, on its face. Ontario, under a Liberal government, is always going to go one place, and that's forward, and we need to make sure that we do that. Okay. Kathleen Wynne wants a quick follow? I think we need to be clear in all of these policy discussions what the problem is that we're trying to solve. I was in Bondhead this morning with some of those farmers that you're talking about in the rural communities, Sandra, and the room was split. There were a couple of people who said they thought it was a great idea to, to do what Tim Hudak's suggesting, but as I left, there were a couple who said, do not sell the LCBO. That's a crazy cockamamie idea. So they're living in those rural communities. But what is the problem we're trying to solve? And I don't think Hudak has outlined exactly what that is. And what we need to do as Liberals is define what those problems are and then have a discussion with the people who are on the front line, whether it's the wine growers, you know, who are innovating, 
about how best to serve the people in the province and the industry. But let's define the problem we're trying to solve before we make a decision on the policy initiative. Okay. Anybody else want a word on this? I spent seven years working as a street outreach worker. The last thing we need to worry about for our kids is whether or not dependers or local corner stores are selling wine or beer. What we do need to worry about is that so many of those small entrepreneurs can't get started. And when new Canadians come and they often open up those mom-and-pop shops, it's hard to do it because everything from the TTC to all government services and flu shots are now run through your shopper's drug mart, and these large chains have displaced that. And mom and pop shops are important to new Canadian families and to people, and they're important to the life and uniqueness of our communities. And those entrepreneurs will make a lot more money from the government selling reasonably good wine and reasonably good beer. And I trust Ontarians to be grown-ups. We're as civil a society as Quebec, and if they've managed it for now for 20 years without a problem, I think we can handle it. Have a little more fun as Ontarians, please. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Everybody's happy? Okay. Anyway, the journalists at the back have got their lead. Sandra Pupatello started drinking at the age of 10. That's what we know. That's right. Okay, sure, bring those up if you like. Okay, let's talk, um, let's talk energy. What will you do, thank you, what will you do about the existing green energy program? Do you support the feed-in tariff? If not, what are your plans? Charles, Susie, you want to go first on this? So, I have some energy experience. So let's deal with that from the outset. As you know, there was a gas plant in Mississauga South. I'm going to start with that one. Sure. I opposed it before I was even a candidate. I opposed it because it was in the wrong location, 100 yards away from people's homes, in another riding, no less. I opposed it when I was a candidate. I opposed it when I was an MPP. I opposed it when I became a minister. And I oppose it still when I sought re-election. And I will ensure that we never make that mistake again. That is why, going forward in other regions of the province, we need to give them the appropriateness to consult and look at what energy uh, programs are being put in their respective ridings so that we can consult with the communities and to ensure that we never make those mistakes again. Gerard Kennedy? Well, and the question is about the feed-in tariff. I think it, it still has the kind of promise when we put it in place, I think we do have to review whether we're getting on the numbers. I think people may realize we're in a different situation now in power in this province. Uh, we're actually uh, got an excess of, of power being produced. Uh, we got to produce by even sometimes the standing power that we have. We can actually consider whether or not we want to build any more new nuclear uh, in terms of being able to meet our demands. But I want to say this. The march towards green power was, a, was an important and smart thing for the government to do. And on this one, it's part to say where are we at and what adjustments can be made, but there's 90% less particulate matter out there because we closed down coal-fired power plants. There are kids with less asthma because a decision was made and a path was arrived at. Now, I want to tell you, when it comes to energy and nuclear and the costs of things, and I wasn't there for the decision, but I empathize a lot with Charles, is that you know it, we do, it's very hard to get that information straight and like somebody want to try and find out what the cost of a nuclear plant is. Um, this is what's, you know, what's on your bill, that mismatch of, of things that are, that are attributed. I mean, we've got, to, we've got to come to reckoning on this. We're now giving money back, a billion dollars a year to everybody, offset the cost. I remember sitting in cabinet saying, we're not doing this anymore, right? We're not going to subsidize business or anybody else. Everybody hold hands all together here. We're going to pay for the cost of power. But we can't, it turns out we can't do that. Up in the north, we're not going to get the circle of fire unless we have some more access to power. So... There's a debate there, but I, I, I want to make sure that people understand we have taken an enormous step to being a green power jurisdiction where people will build things and employ things. And there's, there's, we're on the road to the 50,000 jobs, and I think what we have to do is have a healthy check-in to make sure we don't just do things because we started that way. Harinder Takar. I think it's not uh, what is wrong with the feed-in tariff. I think the key issue in my mind is at what cost are we producing that electricity and what kind of the, uh, that electricity rates are having impact on our businesses. If we are producing expensive electricity, it makes our businesses uncompetitive, even though it has helped us to generate a lot more electricity. So now the question becomes is what do we do with a lot more electricity? And in my plan, I am proposing that we should use that as a leverage to attract investment in the province of Ontario. We shouldn't just give it free to the other provinces. We should actually use that as leverage and sign long-term contracts and encourage people to do the transformation of our industries like 
the forestry industry. We recently had been able to attract a very large firm from India who is actually going to transform our forestry industry by actually dissolving the pulp, shipping it abroad, and increasing the market value of that mill. I think those are the kind of the things that we need to do, but we need to be careful that we don't increase the price of the electricity to the point that our businesses are not competitive anymore. Eric Hoskins. Well, um, I, uh, I think in the, in the case of the gas plants, I mean, I can certainly understand the frustration and the anger that Ontarians feel in terms of the cost of relocating those two plants. And uh, it's clear that that decision uh, to close and relocate those plants should have been made much, much earlier in the consultation process. And what it says to me is it speaks to that consultation process itself, and particularly being in, when you go to rural Ontario, when you see the opposition to wind turbines as well, and the communities perhaps are uncomfortable with having them in their communities, and, they're, and they, are, they are speaking out, and they, they look at Mississauga, and they look at Oakville, and they, they want a, a system of consultation and a, and, a, and a government that will approach this issue consistently across the province, wherever that might occur. So I've called for, well, I'm calling it a, a YIMBY program, Yes in My Backyard, where we give precedent to and prioritize and higher weight to those communities that are able to work in close collaboration with the private sector and with their municipalities, where they say, yes, I do want the economic development in my community. I do want the jobs in my community. And we give greater weight to those because with the FIT program, for example, and I think we need to fairly dramatically increase the, the, the mandatory public consultation as well as the role and the voice of municipalities. But we also, we, were so, we are so oversubscribed for the FIT program that we can afford to give precedence to and highest weight to those private sector proposals that enjoy the confidence and support of the communities and the municipalities around them. Sandra Pupatello. Thanks. It's hard to have a conversation that's such a complicated topic as our green energy or energy plan frontier. It is very complicated. You asked about the FIT program specifically, though. Some of my colleagues who are in government today may not realize that the current Minister of Energy has already changed some of those criteria on the new FIT or FIT 2 or whatever they're called. And because I was in the business community this year, I heard all about it. And that has already taken a lot of the sting out that communities like Carol Mitchells, who's here today from rural Ontario, have felt over what we've done related to wind turbines in whose backyard. Those changes are already coming. And if you look at Brad Duguid, who today endorsed me as the Minister of Economic Development and Trade today, when you look at what they've been doing and what's coming and their long-term plan that he did as an energy minister, you'll see there's not a lot more megawatts coming out on green energy. For us going forward, it has to be affordable, sustainable. It has to be a part of an environmental and economic plan. That's what the energy policy needs to be. Back in the days of Ontario Hydro, it was used then as an economic tool. That's how we got the auto plants. That world is different. But you know what? The world is different even from last year. They just found all of this gas all over America, which totally changed the playing field of energy and where our sources are coming from. We'll insist on clean. I certainly will. But I will tell you that the mix has to change because the world changed since we tabled the Green Energy Act. Government has to know how to respond in kind to that. I will also say that I was around the world selling the Green Energy Act while we were in the House talking about it, saying, look what's coming to Ontario. And we brought an awareness and a spotlight to our province to be clean, green Ontario. We've launched a whole clean tech industry as a result. That's, the, that's, that's putting that piece together between environment and economic. That's important. Going forward, I believe that we've got to look at how we hand out our energy generation. We've got to look at agencies that we thought back in the days when Ernie Eves was in charge of energy, they created a multitude of agencies. I've got to ask why policy for transmission sits over here and policy for generation sits over there. When they're so clearly intertwined, they've got to be flatlined. So you need a premier and a leader that understands the guts of that to know what direction we're going to give to the business community and assure the public that in the future we are moving forward to affordable, sustainable energy planning for Ontario, and I want to lead that party and that government. Okay, Thank here's you. Glenn Murray's turn now. Yeah, this is where I probably disagree more with what we've been doing fundamentally. The word that's been missing is plan. If you go to Calgary, you'll see the Green Energy Plan. It was done by the Canadian Urban Institute when I was the president and CEO. It was all done by Ontarians, as was most of BC's. 
And the same group of us lobbied this government for years, which I eventually became a member of, to start planning energy at the community level. The first thing you ask is, how are people using energy? And we actually had some success. If you go to Calgary, you'll see an energy map. When do people use energy? Airports, downtown, suburbs, industrial facilities. Then you explain that to people. And then you match the right technology for the right type of demand and energy profile, which is what Calgary did. Then you take that energy plan with all of those options to the citizens of Kitchener, Waterloo, Bruce County, or Cornwall. And you say, here are the choices. Thermal will cost you this. Solar will cost you that. Wind will cost you that. And we want your municipality to plan your energy the same way it plans its water and sewer, because your water and sewer are actually two of the biggest drivers of energy, which is what they do in every place from Osoyoos to Calgary. But we didn't listen as a government to the community and to the experts. So Calgary announced that it was saving $32 billion, redirecting 30 uh, hectares of residential development over the next 25 years. And green energy is very popular, and people are getting elected in Calgary and in Alberta for green energy. Liberals are getting defeated over this, not because we don't have a good energy plan, because we didn't plan it. So I have a detailed plan on community energy planning that will save us huge amounts of money, will never put us in the embarrassing situation of canceling plants because we didn't plan properly, and will get elected, not defeated on green energy. And we can do that because we're smarter than, El well, at least as smart as Albertans and British Columbians, and we should listen to the same, the Ontarians and Manitobans too, my friend, <laughs> two of us here. Uh, and we should listen to those folks, and we should listen to our own people and not sell our best ideas to our competitors. Last word on this to Kathleen. We're Mann. Ontario champions in this room. <laughs> we did, the, the Green Energy Act was designed to jumpstart an industry. That's what it was about. It was about jumpstarting an industry, cleaning up the air, and getting us on a, a culture shift that I, I think has gone very well. It was designed to evolve. It was what was built into it with some of the changes that Sandra has talked about. And being in the government, I know that Minister Bentley right now is on that path. The, the pricing is changing. The point system for allowing uh, municipalities to have a say in what's cited in their communities is changing. And that was always the plan. I think we need to look at conservation. I don't think we've been ambitious enough on conservation. And I think Sandra's right. You know, we need to look at do do we have the right number of agencies? Do we need fewer? Do we need more? I don't think we need more. I think we need fewer and more alignment. So all of that complicated work needs to be done. But let's not forget that the air is cleaner and we have a new industry in the province. We are leaders and we need to continue to be. And in order to continue to be leaders, we need to be flexible and pose these difficult questions to ourselves. Candidates, I'm afraid that's our time. I want to Join all of these people here in thanking you for participating in our debate today. Thank you.